0: Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.
1: Hello, another month, another podcast, and various voices for you to listen to here in snatched conversations in various places during my travels with Askell. You've got Amanda Spielman who came to talk to us in Sheffield telling council about some of the ideas behind the changes to inspection, are starting to tease out some of the detail. Jackie O'Hanlon, who's the Director of Education with the Royal Shakespeare Company, talks about a really interesting project, a big survey where they've listened to young people. And young people have said, listen to us, we really value the arts, we want the arts to be given more attention, we want them to be valued in performance measures and so on and so forth. Jackie explains really brilliantly the Time to Listen campaign. Then there's researcher from UCL, Sam Sims, who's always great value and he talks about workload and pay and which is more important in terms of retaining teachers. You'll hear Sarah Balam, who's a head teacher in the Northeast and a council member, talking about what it's like when lots of young people in your school are given unconditional offers and the devastating effect that that has on attendance. Mike Buchanan is the new chief executive of the Headmasters and Mistresses Conference, and he talks a little bit about that organisation and his priorities as he steps into that new role. You'll hear also from Rachel Warwick, our new vice president. She runs a mat in. Oxfordshire and also is part of a really successful and interesting teaching school alliance and you'll also hear from Roy Blatchford who's going to be leading our commission of inquiry into English on behalf of the 190,000 children who didn't get a four or higher in English or maths at GCSE this year with for some of them devastating consequences they are the forgotten third and Roy talks about why he believes we need to do better for those young people. And as always, hope you enjoy the conversations.
2: I'm Amanda Spielman. I'm the Ofsted Chief Inspector.
1: And you've just been talking to council, that's our elected representatives, about the ideas around the new framework. And you were asked some questions. So you were asked a question, for example, about how might you make a decision about what constitutes getting good results through kind of bad approaches? And you give a, a startlingly good answer there. What, what does that look like?
2: It's it 's about not rewarding people for stripping out everything that they don't expect to flow directly through into published measures so the primary schools that, that, is, that are stripping out everything apart from maths and English in, in years five and six or a secondary school there's an example I know of where a history GCSE is being taught as a five year course um, with a, a, a topic each term or each year and the children literally get nothing else in five years of history teaching but that GCSE that that's the kind of thing that I don't want an inspection framework to be rewarding.
1: You're essentially saying that we've, we kind of fell into a trap after the national strategies, yes. in a way, of forgetting what curriculum planning is, but also allowing ourselves to think that education can be defined in numbers. Yes. And what you're doing is saying, actually, education has to be about more than that.
2: There's a great deal that you can do through, through measurements, but you hang too much weight on any kind of measurement. It can't carry the weight. We have to have a, co- a concept of quality of education that is more than just any, 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 one, any one performance me- measure, no matter how good. So, 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 so what, I'm, what I'm concerned about is getting making sure that we have that, that well-founded concept
3: of quality of education in everything that we do and what we carry through in the inspection framework.
1: Manders Spilman, thanks for coming to Sheffield to see us. Thank you, Joe.
3: I'm Jackie O'Hanlon, Director of Education at the Royal Shakespeare Company.
1: And we're not in Stratford at the moment. We're at the House of Lords. Why are we here, Jackie?
3: We are here to mark the launch of a report called Time to Listen that's based on three years of research undertaken with thousands of young people and their teachers in schools across England, asking them why they feel and whether they do feel it's important that we have art subjects in our schooling.
1: And there's a real feeling that this this is a kind of critical point. I mean, there's quite a lot of gloom, but also the sheer number of people here who aren't from the echo chamber of education and the arts. You've got people from business and, and beyond. Uh, what, what's your perspective in terms of what now needs to happen?
3: I think there is a very complex set of... Um, There's a complex web of things that need to change. So in our report, what we say is that there are unintended consequences that we are now living out. And the unintended consequences are about STEM. There's been a really successful drive towards STEM subjects. Actually, that's been so successful that then we're, we're, we're putting at risk um, the noise around art subjects and what they give us. There are also things like facilitating subjects that the Russell Group Universities have defined, which are subjects they say keep student op- options open. They exclude art subjects from them. There's also the testing regime, the measurement re- regime that schools have been part of. We're, seeing, we're hearing positive changes in that respect now, most recently last week. But we are feeling now the very real impact of that of the combination of all of those factors and what young people's voices are powerfully telling us in this report and in the event today is, to them, it sends a message that art subjects are not valuable or valued. And yet they live out in studying art subjects that that's at odds with how they feel about art subjects because it gives them so many things that they say they don't get from other areas of the curriculum.
1: What I like about this is you're not setting up kind of phony binary oppositions here so it's not saying uh, there is too much stem there shouldn't be any stem but what we're saying is that there ought to be an entitlement to this stuff just like there is to the stem:
3: that's exactly right it's not saying any one of those things is bad it's saying we need all of it and the problem at the moment I think is that the emphasis is less on broad and more on these are the subjects that really count that's the music that we need to change, we need to, I know that many head teachers, all head teachers, will want to offer a broad and balanced curriculum. It feels, it's a very difficult context for them to be making that a reality for their children. This report is saying we need to and so there are a number of um, policy makers, school leaders, cultural organisations, we all need to come together and support each other in making these changes possible.
1: Jackie Hanlon, thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Sam Sims from the Centre for Education Improvement Science at UCL University. And
1: you've just been talking to our council here about some research. Tell us what you've been saying, because it was quite strikingly different from what we might have heard from the government about, let's say, workload. Right, so I think
0: uh, workload matters for teacher retention um, and it definitely matters for teachers in their everyday lives, Um, but I think it's not the only important thing uh, for both of those outcomes. And there's quite a lot of evidence actually that um, paying early career teachers slightly more money um, has quite a big effect on keeping them in the profession, particularly in shortage subjects like STEM um, and, uh, and
1: MFL. And why, just, I know you're rushing for a train, so that, that's all we're going to have time for, except for this. And why might it be in the interests of government to talk about workload more than they talk about pay? Uh, well, I, I suppose uh, workload is in the
0: control of teachers, albeit, um, you know, they're, they're under pref- uh, pressure from Ofsted and the accountability regime. Um, but I actually think the government don't has any, doesn't have anything to be afraid of uh, in, 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 in changing teacher pay because. Um, there are ways in which it can be moved around um, in terms of paying early career teachers more um, and paying certain teachers in certain subjects more um, which will I think in the long run save them money on initial teacher training uh, because you know every teacher that leaves is a teacher that has to be you know replaced with a new trainee and, and we spend a great deal of money on that Sam go and get your train thank you Thanks.
4: I'm Sarah Bowden the head teacher at Headland School of Brilliant
1: now let's just think back to A-level results day because you Gave us a story which yep. is extraordinary. Just tell us what happened.
4: So, on results day, um, 2017, our A star to B was 75%. In 2018, it was more like 14%. We'd anticipated the students weren't going to do as well as previous year. It was a different cohort, and their average target grade was a D. Um, we were also felt very hampered by the fact that from January onwards in 2018, 88% of our cohort of students had, had unconditional offers um, to many two of our students. Two, female students um, actually had to get grades to be able to go on to university. So, on results day, um, we were disappointed slightly with the results that the students had got. However, in terms of them securing university places, by the end of results day, every single child had a university place of their choice. Which was phenomenal.
1: So they get these <laughs> unconditional offers, they then stop attending? Yes, lot, so they stop
4: attending. Them. So 88% of the cohort getting unconditional offers. One of the biggest impacts was the fact that from January onwards they just didn't attend school. Their priority became work and, and funding university, saving up to fund university. They saw it as a window of opportunity, so many of them got full-time jobs, working 40 hours a week in local establishments, um, and every now and then they would come into school for the odd lesson.
1: And without naming uh, the the student, there's one in particular, isn't there, who was given an offer which he rejected and then something happened. Just tell me what that was.
4: So we had a student who got three U grades, who got a university offer from a a university on the south coast. Um, And um, he decided actually the south coast was too far to go, so he was going to go to a university up north. He got a, a university offer up north, which he accepted university on the south coast then rank him up and say we'll give you a £1,000 if you will come to us. Um, he still decided to go to the university up north um, but I think it again just flies in the face of everything we're trying to achieve in terms of the students getting good grades to be able to secure a good university place when universities are, are, are with children who get three U's offering them a £1,000 so,
1: so, So we've got students who've got three U's who are now doing marine biology for example yeah. at the university? Yeah.
4: yeah fishery science courses yeah and again for somebody who actually has a fisheries science background, and that was my degree. I worked hard for my A-levels, I worked hard to make sure I went to a university where I was expected to get good grades. Again, I think it undervalues the university system and the A-level system massively. Uh,
1: But also, it sets these young people up in many cases for failure, isn't it? Because they 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 haven't had that kind of academic... It's a
4: habit. It's a pattern of study, and having to work independently to secure good grades. It takes hard graft to get good A level results. Um, and actually, I just think it undervalues the whole system, whether it's A levels or whether it's university courses. How successful these young people will now be um, in university, yeah, obviously, yeah. there's a big question mark, and any, only time will tell. But I imagine they will find it very, very difficult. Yeah. So Ben, yeah.
5: thanks for talking to me. I'm Mike Buchanan. I'm the new executive director of HMC. Now, HMC, uh,
1: tell us what it is. Tell us who you represent for those people who might not know.
5: So HMC stands for the Headmasters and Headmistresses Conference and it is an association of the heads of... Uh, Roughly 350 schools, mostly in the UK, uh, but around the world. Uh, The leading independent schools in the UK and elsewhere. I mean, these
1: are essentially the most recognised names, aren't they? The the brand of the HMC schools is extraordinary. And the thing I've got a sense of from working with those uh, is that whereas we might have thought that they belong to a world completely detached from someone running a maintained school, actually their concerns are exactly like everybody else, in my experience. So it's all about teaching and learning, and it's about teachers and pedagogy, and so, uh, you've been an HMC head uh, for m- mm-hmm.
5: many years. Just give us a flavour of the kind of issues that HMC uh, leaders have got on their plate. So, uh, before I do that, I just want to you know, uh, dispel a myth that the, all HMC schools uh, you know, are represented or, or are the same as the well-known ones, you know, the Eton's, es- uh, the Harrows, the Westminster of this world. Well. They're actually a very diverse group of schools. So, my school that I led. Uh, wasn't uh, academically selective, uh, it had a reasonably broad uh, social base uh, and catered towards uh, you know, middle-class parents, both of whom were, were working, in order to be able to pay the fees to go. Um, but you're absolutely right, Jeff, the, the issues are exactly the same. How do we ensure great teaching? Uh, how do we make sure we get great teachers and train great teachers and retain great teachers? Um, how do we work within the confines of the finances that we've got in different context from state-funded schools but nonetheless uh, a really quite tight financial climate that we're in particularly with the Additional costs coming along in terms of uh, salary increases, pension, uh, etc. How do schools that have got an international population react to Brexit? That's a, that's on people's mind mm. uh, at the moment, uh, and in, most importantly, how do we enable the people that uh, uh, learn and work in our schools to flourish? That that I think is the certainly is my obsession, uh, and it's an obsession that uh, lots of my colleagues uh, share.
1: And I know that one of the things um, which has been a theme actually for certainly my time at Askel working with HMC but it was crystallised at the conference of HMC mm-hmm. last week is essentially the government's view that what independent schools should be doing is taking on and running academies is a really misguided notion but actually what we've got is so much in common across different types of schools there are things we could be doing to work one with another. What kind
5: of ideas have you got around that? So, every one of the uh, members' schools has got one or more partnership uh, collaborations with. Uh, uh State State schools, um, roughly eighty percent of those are of an academic nature roughly ninety five percent offer some sort of sporting uh, or, or drama or musical uh, collaboration uh, and you 're absolutely right what we 're trying to do I- is to work with people um, where they want to work with us, in other words, real collaboration, real partnership. Uh, equally owned, equally driven on the basis of need uh, and on the basis of uh, either school's capability and capacity to do it and that can extend from sponsoring uh, uh, an academy or being a governor in an academy through to, uh, you know, in my own institution when I ran it it was simply responding to local primary schools who said we haven't got great sports provisions could you help us? So, you know, we provided specialists Uh, swimming teaching using our own teachers uh, bringing the pupils in our own buses to the to the school allowing therefore the staff in the primary schools to have time to do other things which they valued hugely and that worked really really well and that was responding to a need it wasn't saying here we are Uh, it was very much responding to need. And that happens all over the country, good examples in York, in in, uh, uh, North London, in South London, uh, in West London, uh, in Bristol, emerging in in, uh, Cheltenham, uh, here in Sheffield, Uh, all over the country those things are happening quietly without anyone really making a great fuss about them. Uh, and they, they have a big impact on hundreds of thousands of youngsters. Yeah,
1: and essentially, finally, what that demonstrates is that we're not thinking in kind of old-fashioned structural terms about silos. We're actually thinking in terms of what can we do to
5: help children, what can we do to develop teachers, what can we do to share insights into leadership, essentially. Yeah, I think we should get away from, from you know, the language of, of sectors. You know, we, are, we are collectively providing education to the nation's children, uh, and I see uh, indep- independent schools uh, as an integral part of that provision with specific strengths and specific weaknesses, uh, uh, and we should look at the the whole context and I absolutely agree let 's get away from. Structures and talk about kids and how we provide the best education we can for the children in our schools.
1: Mike, you've been in the post for two weeks, so it seems a timely moment to give you a Jeff Barton CD mix, which you can either see as a celebratory act or one of punishment.
5: <laughs> uh, well, I'll have to listen to it and I'll let you know.
1: But thank Thanks. you. Thanks for talking to us. All right.
6: I'm Rachel Warwick and Executive Head Teacher of Ridgeway Education Trust in Oxfordshire and Vice President of our school this year.
1: Absolutely, and congratulations on that. We're going to come to that in a second. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your trust and, uh, and the schools there.
6: My trust includes an all-girls-and-all-boys um, comprehensive Single sex, 11 to 16 schools, a mixed sixth form, a teaching school and a local primary school which is joining us in the new year, which is um, exciting.
1: Very good. And how long have you been there?
6: This is my ninth year um, in, in the school, now as executive head, previously as head teacher.
1: And when I listen to you, you're at that stage of head- headship where, part, I think this is right, you might, crit- you might uh, correct me, Uh, The the satisfaction comes from actually delegating some of that leadership and seeing other people. Just give us a flavour of what that means in practice.
6: Um, I think it's about the joy, really, of having supported and developed other people over time and watching their development and feeling that in some small way you've played a part in that and being able to step back and watch other people do things differently to you, sometimes a lot better than I do them. And I think that is a really good mix for the school. I think it's rich and it keeps a sense of energy and movement and new ideas flowing in and out of the school, which is really healthy. So it's quite a deliberate thing for me to think about distributed leadership and to make that work successfully across across our schools.
1: I remember last year coming and speaking to Oxfordshire Heads and one of the striking things about your teaching school alliance is it is much more kind of strategic than sometimes you see it is included well you 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 tell us about it tell us Mm. how how many uh, schools are involved but also
6: what some of its aims are the Oxfordshire Teaching School Alliance spans the county so it has I think within it 12 different teaching schools and because of that it's able to operate um, at quite a scale in terms of initial teacher training CPD and school to school support and it's collaborative so we're not pitching ourselves against each other with too many small Teaching schools in a, a small area, so I think it was a very creative idea um, at its inception in about 2010, whenever the teaching schools arrived on the agenda, and continues to thrive really, and to yeah, go from strength to strength.
1: One last question. So you're vice president uh, this year; um, you'll be president next year. We're here at Ascal Council. To people who are Ascal members but haven't been to council, give a flavour of what we've been talking about at this council, what what have our elected representatives been doing here?
6: We've been focused very clearly at this council on funding and we have got a specific theme for each of the three councils of the year. We've had some wonderful outside speakers come and talk to us, Amanda Spielman and David Laws, a really rich conversation. And um, we've managed to get together as a group. And debate some important issues for the profession and also to think about the practical outcome of these things and how we'll take them forward to make a difference for members across the country and um, the children in, in their schools and colleges.
1: Rachel Warwick, thank you very much. Uh, Roy Blatchford. And for those people who don't know who you are, Roy, just give us a flavour of your varied career, starting with the prison.
7: (laughs) Uh, I started teaching in Brixton Prison back in the 1970s, moved into primary education in Brixton, had a really interesting career in the Inner London Education Authority, moved into secondary, then moved into headship in Oxfordshire and Milton Keynes, and spent the past ten years running the National Education Trust, which has worked uh, nationally and internationally, and most recently I've been working in the Middle East... Uh, looking at education system reform with uh, ministers, rural families, and so on.
1: And you hear in Sheffield with us, we've got our school council going on, which is where we essentially hammer out our policies and so on. And we've been talking about English. Just give us a flavour of what it is that we are talking about and why. I think our
7: starting point, really, is that the current system of examinations means that at the end of 12 years of compulsory education reception right through primary and then through secondary, when youngsters reach 16, you'd expect, wouldn't you, particularly if you look at our English as our great global language, you'd expect all 16-year-olds to be able to leave school with a mastery and a dignity uh, around written and spoken English. And actually, I think the vast majority of those youngsters do. But our exam system, its norm reference, says each year about a third of the students can't achieve, don't achieve this year a pass grade in English. And I think there's something fundamentally wrong with uh, the fact that so many youngsters, it's 160,000 youngsters this year, have left after 12 years of compulsory education without the dignity of a pass grade in their own language, namely English. And I think that's really at the heart of what we want to do with this commission. I think linked to that, uh, partly from what I've said of my overseas experience, there is a humbling bilingualism around the world, and everybody speaks, you know, their Arabic and their English, their Swedish and their English, and I think we owe it to our own youngsters, five hundred thousand youngsters each year in a cohort, but particularly there is one hundred and sixty thousand that they leave school with the dignity of being able to master the English language. I think as far as the Commission's concerned, we're minded to call it the forgotten third because it is a third of youngsters each year who, despite the great successes in the exam system – and let's never lose sight of that for so many youngsters – but a third of youngsters are, at age 16, being told by the exam system that, sorry, you haven't passed. And I think we have to look at that.
1: That's going to take a fairly significant change of mindset, isn't it, because the system is built on the notion that if you were to say, right, what, what would we need to do for 100% of young people to be able to get a grade four or higher uh, – inevitably that will lead uh, certain people, maybe certain ministers, to say, well, that that means you're kind of dumbing down and you're making excuses and so on and so forth. We're not trying to do that, are we? We're trying to do something which is thinking a little bit more as they would do overseas, which is why would you possibly not want 100% of your young people in their own language to be able to get something? And I love this word, dignity.
7: Yes, I think it's not only, of course, about English. I think it's about English and maths. Mm -hmm. So let's be clear, this year, 36%, I'll say that again, 36% 36% of 16 year olds in this country after 12 years of compulsory education did not muster combined English and maths grade four. So I think that's our starting point that whilst we have success in the system, we need to do something about it. Your, your question around uh, challenging some orthodoxes I think there are possibly, without anticipating what the Commission is going to say over in the next year, I think there are, there are if you like, there are, some, there are some points to be made around the content of English. What does it mean to master the language at 16 in writing and reading, essay writing, comprehension and so on? And I'm hoping that we'll, through the Commission from, if you like, 0 to 16, 0 to 18, uh, make some comments about the, co- the content. And of course, early years is is an important part of this, primary-secondary continuity, the disconnect sometimes between Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 2, of which ministers are are well aware. So there's a content issue, and then I think there's an assessment issue. And I think, uh, without trying to challenge the whole system, we need to give ourselves some breathing space to look afresh. Uh, whether norm referencing is the way to assess youngsters at 16. Two points in particular internationally of course most systems now assess at 18 plus not at 16 plus and given youngsters in this country now have to stay to 18 plus uh, that's a a dimension Uh, and this question of norm referencing uh, let's take the driving license let's take uh, grade exams in music and there are different ways of doing this and uh, of course we're hooked into a particular system and one reflection might be the universities don't fail large numbers of youngsters they take fifty percent now of the nation's children at uh, 18 and they give them award them ones, two ones, two twos, threes very very few failures so it is possible to think of examining and assessing in a way that's not necessarily norm reference I suppose in the end what we have to pull off uh, with this commission is perhaps nicely to challenge the notion that are we assessing the youngsters or are we assessing the school system? And maybe we don't have an assessment system which is fit for both those purposes.
1: Roy Blatchford, thank you very much.
5: The ASCII Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.